Um, first of all, welcome everybody. So nice to see all of you here on a busy weeknight. Um, I see some familiar faces. As a therapist, it's always risky to say something like that, but, <laughs> but it's really nice. It's really nice you guys took time out of your busy schedules to come here to learn and educate yourself how to be effective and uh, how to work with your teen and preteen. I guess for tonight's um, lecture, we're just going to call it teen, but if you have a preteen, throw them in that, in the, in that category and uh, we should be good. Just put these away. Okay. So I've actually been working with teenagers since I myself was a teenager, which sounds pretty funny, but I started a Big Brother Big Sister program, um, I was a mentor, and I found myself in this world, in the teen world, since pretty much I was 18, 19 years old. Um, that kind of led me to the whole psychology field, which um, landed me actually in SBH. I started as an intern over there 10 years ago, and I kind of moved up over there in the clinic, um, and I became known as the person who deals with teenagers. Anyone that has a question about teens, they would, you know, come and we would, uh, I would supervise a lot of the people who were seeing teenagers and preteens. Um, and from there I opened my private practice where, as, um, as, as Dobrat said, uh, I see mostly teenagers. I have some adults, I have some kids, but primarily I would say 70% of my workload is the teenagers. And that's really what I'm passionate about. That's, my, that's what I love doing. Um, and uh, in the workshops, what I do is, uh, some of you attended my workshops, and what I do is I try to really help parents uh, understand what it means to be a teenager, what it means for, for a teenager to be a teenager, not for them to be a teenager, but to understand the teenage experience. And that's really my goal here tonight as well. Um, very often parents ask me, how can I have a good relationship with my teenager? How do I build a good, solid relationship with my teenager? The reason why they ask me this question is because, well, many reasons, but it can range from just some minor disobediences where a teenager's just not listening, not really following through, to sometimes full-blown emotional interactions where, you know, there's words flying, people are walking away hurt, people are walking away misunderstood, parent and teen, and they're at a loss. They feel helpless to understand their teenagers. They really, really have a difficult time, and they want a better relationship, that sometimes it's so hard to relate to them and to understand what's going on for them, and they so badly want it. And believe it or not, the teens actually want it too, even if they don't uh, tell you guys that they want that relationship, but they really deep down um, do ask for that relationship. So my, tonight my goal really is to give you guys a better idea about that stage in life, how to approach it, and hopefully by understanding their perspective, it will give you a better angle, it'll give you a better uh, way to sort of approach the whole um, uh, teen scene, let's call it, with parenting. They don't make it easy though. Teens do not make it easy at all. The words I hear very often are that they are obnoxious, they are selfish. Anyone want to jump in, please feel free. Anyone want, anyone want to dare say something? Disrespectful? Self-centered, self-absorbed. Self what else? Anything else? Anyone else? Stubborn. Stubborn. Very good. Lazy. Lazy. Oh, I hear that a lot. Lazy, lazy. Oh, that's a great word. Manipulative. Entitled. Who said entitled? Excellent word. They feel entitled. You have to do this for me. You, I, I deserve this. What do you mean? You're my parent. You need to. Right? You need to do that for me. It's your job. And it's very difficult as a parent to, he, you know, to hear those things and to experience uh, you know, the teenage uh, rash, let's call it. Uh, um, so, this is the words, these are the words that I hear very, very often. Um, a lot of parents will say to me though, we never would have done this in, in our day. I don't understand this. What is this behavior? When I was a teenager, this never would fly. If I would have done any of those things, I don't know what would have happened. I won't even say what would have happened. Raise your hand if that's, that, that's what you would think. Right? True? If you would have done that, what they, what they do nowadays, oh my gosh. Right? So the question is, what changed? Why are the teenagers so different? What happened to them? Technology, social media, the information age. Teenagers actually know a lot nowadays. 
They know so much more than, in a way than we ever knew as teenagers. They know their rights. They know what we can and cannot do. And so much in the world has changed that teenagers have changed. Therefore, parenting has changed also. Or parenting, rather, needs to change in order for us to be effective. If we're going to use the same methods that we used back in the day, well, the way maybe some of us were parented, it just wouldn't work with teenagers nowadays. So what is the issue? Why would the, why would the parenting, what, the way we were parented, why would that not work? What, what was the problem? What was, what was the parenting, and what's the problem with it? So, to explain this, I'm gonna explain something called a concept, if any, any of you took psychology classes, called operant conditioning. The way the parenting used to work was very much a fear-based model, a behavioral model. Anyone ever heard of operant conditioning? Yes? So what does that mean? It means that it's a reward-punishment sort of model, where if you do what's right, you'll get rewarded, or the reward will be, will leave you alone. But if you did something that was wrong, you would get punished, sometimes severely, sometimes it would be with words, sometimes it would be in other methods, right? So that model is called operant conditioning. It's called a fear-based model, a behavioral model. There's actually a very famous psychologist whose name was B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner was someone who was doing research on this behavioral model, he came up with it, and he wanted to know how would, how would behavior change based on punishment and reward. So he took a bunch of rats and he put them in a nice metal cage. And he said, I wonder what would happen if every time there was a little lever in the cage, every time the rat would touch this lever, would pull it or whatever, he would give a sugar cube to the rat. And he wanted to see would behavior change over time. Every time the rat hit the lever, he would give a sugar cube. Guess what happened? The rat's like, hmm, this is cool. And would hit the lever again and again and again. And he would keep giving sugar cubes. The behavior increased. Then he said, okay, I wonder if I could reverse that. I wonder if I punished the rats, would they stop doing that behavior? So what did he do? This wouldn't fly in today's age, but he started to electrocute the rats with a little, little zap, electric current would go through the metal cage. The second they would pull that lever, got a little zap. So the they're like, what's that? Where's our sugar cube? And over time they realized that there's no sugar cube, there's only a punishment, right? There was a negative punishment. And what happened? They stopped doing the behavior. The behavior decreased. They stopped pulling the, le the lever. Right? So this is called the behavioral model. This was sort of the, the model that was being used back in the day. If we did something right, all went well. If we did something wrong, we got punished. The reason why that's not such a great model is for several reasons. But number one, um, as soon as the fear is over, as soon as a, a, a teenager is not scared or a child is not scared, what happens to that behavior? They don't care to not do it. You tell them, listen, don't, uh, don't tease your sister, right? So if you do, you're gonna get punished. Okay, they tease their sister, they get punished. They tease their sister, they get punished, they stop doing it. But the second they're not scared of you, what happens? They're just gonna go back to teasing their sister. They're not scared. Or if there's no punishment, they didn't actually learn anything. They just learned fear the punishment. So that's not such a great model, right? For also, I mean, this is just also with kids in general, we don't want to use that model because that model is actually causing stress. When they tested these rats after, the, after they were getting electrocuted, they saw that the stress hormones in the blood were actually really, really high because what that model does is it creates a, 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 a stress for that person to avoid doing that behavior. And when you're stressed, it's very hard to actually learn something new. You're not learning, you're just trying to survive. You're in survival mode. That's what stress does. It says, hey, just survive. Just get through this. You're not actually thinking. You're not doing any higher level thinking. We want to try to avoid that. We want our kids and teenagers to learn and about you know, what it is that they're doing that's wrong. Which leads me to my next point, that the parenting that has to happen is not a fear-based one. That model doesn't really work anymore. The model that's going to work better is an intellectual-based one. It's one that, with a dynamic relationship, you are actually becoming sort of like a teacher. You're actually challenging them to learn about this world, to learn about people, to learn about their behaviors. Now, obviously, that's a lot harder, right? Punishment, you could just say, go to your room. I'm taking away this. I'm taking away that. You're threatening. You're just screaming. Two seconds. It's easy. They do it. They get scared. It works. It's instantaneous. But 
It doesn't actually teach them a thing. They don't learn anything from that, from, from that model. From the intellectual model, you're challenging them to think. You're challenging them, hey, you're teasing your sister. What's going on for your sister now? Is this something that you think she appreciates? So because of that, we have to create some sort of limit or boundary regarding teasing your sister. Right? So parenting is going to be based on that sort of model. But what does that take? In order to have that sort of model work, it takes a, ver a, a better relationship. You can't just go to a kid that you barely see you know, and just start telling him these things and expect him to just learn. You want to have this relationship where it's, you're showing them and teaching them and they're somewhat receptive to it. But in order to do that, as I said, you need to have a good relationship. Right? So what does relationship mean? How do you have a good relationship? What does it take to have a good relationship? So, what does it take? Communication. Communication. I love that word. I'm going to talk about that actually. Yeah, thank you for that word. But in the word relationship is the word, anyone know? Relate. relate. You have to relate to your teenager. Well, in any relationship, you have to relate to the person that you're in a relationship with. If you don't relate to them, then you're not going to understand them. What does relate mean? You have to understand someone else's, another human's emotional experience. But what is their emotional experience? What is going on for a teenager? Okay, now you're telling right on, great, I want to have a relationship, but what's going on for them? I don't get this dude, he's psycho. I literally hear that word. I don't get it, I've heard, <laughs> she's obsessed, or possessed I should say. And obsessed. <laughs> this is something that I hear very often. So how do I do it, what do I do? So step number one, I'm going to take a step back, and I want to tell about. This is the foundation of what's going on for a teenager. So, the teenage stage is one of transformation. There's a lot of transforma transformation that's happening on many different levels. One of the transformations that are, that's happening is obviously the most obvious one is the physical one. There's a physical transformation. Boys are little puny kids and suddenly they become tall and muscular and, and their voice starts to change, right? Girls also start developing. There's a physical change. It actually scares them, by the way. That physical change, sometimes they don't know who they are. One day they're short, the next day they're tall. They don't know. Girls, it's another story, right? It's, it's, it's a little disconcerting for them. They're going through this transformation. That's one. Another change, anyone want to try to guess what, what some of the changes are, transformations are? We said the physical. Intellectual. There's an intellectual change, okay? Suddenly they start talking to you about philosophy. I don't know about you guys, but they start uh, politics, business. They start wanting to know everything about everything, right? They start deciding things and, and trying to project things, like the, predicting. They're, they're all over the place. They, they're trying to understand the world from an intellectual perspective. It's a good thing. These are good things, right? Um, there's obviously the sexual change. They're going through puberty. They start becoming attracted to the other gender. They're going through ethical and moral changes, right? Their moral development starts to take place. Kohlberg has a, has a whole theory about moral development, right? And they start asking right and wrong. They want to know what's right. They want to know what's wrong. And they engage in these conversations constantly. That's because morally they're starting to become developed. But the most important change and transformation that happens over teenagehood is the, the psychological transformation. There's a psychological transformation that happens for a, teenage, uh, for, for a child going through the teenage stage. And what is that? That's called individuation. Independence. So there was another famous psychologist whose name was Eric Erickson. And he has what's called the psychosocial stages of development where basically he outlines a whole, and you guys could look this up online, but he has a, at every stage in life where, and I'm going to read you a couple of them, where there is, where there is a, a conflict at that stage. And at every stage in life, this internal conflict has to be resolved. And in order to move to the next stage properly, you have to resolve this conflict, and then you can move to the next stage. I'll give you an example. So in infancy, there is this conflict called trust versus mistrust, right? So you have a little baby, it's zero to uh, one, one year old, where the baby is hungry, right? And it starts crying. It has a physical need. And it waits to see if anyone's going to fulfill that need. If the caregiver does fulfill the need, if the caregiver feeds the baby within a reason reasonable amount of time, it learns, hey, I have a physical need. 
and the world or my caregiver is going to respond to that need. And it learns to trust the world. The world can be trusted. But if an infant is not, does not get their physical need met, they're hungry and they're screaming and they're screaming and they're screaming, and the physical need is not met, <clears throat> what happens is, is they start to learn to mistrust the world. They think that the world is not a trusting place. And then guess what happens to someone like that? Over time, they start to, they, that mistrust can grow and it could cause issues in relationships. It could cause issues with friends. It could cause many different types of issues if they don't resolve that conflict. So that's, for example, the infancy stage, the early childhood stage, one to three years old, autonomy versus shame. Autonomy means what? To do things on your own, right? Everyone knows about the terrible twos. All those kids want to do is do everything on their own. Myself, myself, I don't want you to get involved. I want to do it myself. Why? Because there's an internal conflict. There's a war inside of them. Can you be autonomous? If you can't, you might feel a lot of shame. And that's the stage of early childhood. Autonomy versus shame. What do you guys think the adolescent stage is? What is the internal conflict with adolescence? Anyone want to guess? What are they trying to do? What are, they, uh, what are, what are teens trying to accomplish? They're trying to accomplish, anyone? Independence. Who said that? Excellent. Independence. He actually calls it identity versus confusion. Identity versus confusion. Right? So what does that mean, identity versus confusion? So to explain, I'm going to say what, I'm going to explain what, what happens. So baby is born, right? They're crying. Um, they're hungry. Mommy feeds the baby. Baby feels good. Okay, now they're cold. You wrap them up, they're warm, okay, stops crying again. Um, has a dirty diaper, change the diaper, okay, he's fine again. So this baby, all it wants to do is just engage in what we call passive pleasure. Passive pleasure. Just to sit and do nothing and just feel good. I don't want to be in pain, I don't want to be cold, I don't want to be uncomfortable, I just want to chill. Leave me alone. Don't hurt me, don't, I don't want any pain, I just want to relax. This passive pleasure, it's great. For a year or two years, they're, they're, they're doing great. Then they may have to go to some sort of pre-K, and they may have to, like, I don't know, not hit another kid. Or they may have to just put the blocks away. So now there's a drop of responsibility. It's not just all passive pleasure. They, still have, they start having things that they need to do. And they continue on, and they go to first grade, and they start having to maybe sit in some desks for a couple hours a day. So now passive pleasure starts to shrink. For a couple hours a day, they got to sit in this chair, may, might not be so fun. Second, third grade, they might have some tests they have to study for, right? And so on and so forth, we go through life. Until when? We're adults. And as, a, as an adult, do we have any passive pleasure? Do any of you ever want to chill? Don't answer this question. <laughs> of course we do, right? Which adult doesn't want to chill? But here's how it works as an adult. You get up in the morning, five, six in the morning, you prepare the bags, you run around, you do errands, make sure the kids go to school, you go to work, you take care of what the house needs to take, be t you know, all the things the house needs, needs to get done, you, get, you take care of, you, sh you shop, you cook, you clean, whatever you do, and guess what happens? Sometime in the evening, maybe eight, maybe nine, probably closer to 10, maybe 11, you're like, ah. Oh. Ah, now I get the chill. Passive pleasure, where are you? You take out this little box, this little ribbon, you pull it out, and you pull out passive pleasure, and you're like, ah, I just get to indulge in passive pleasure for a couple hours. And if those kids disturb you during that hour, you want to smack them. <laughs> Leave me alone. I am right now in baby self. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see your face. This is my time. And that's called passive pleasure. We still have it as, as an adult. But wait a second, hold on. We have a child, passive pleasure all day, every day, and as an adult, you learn to put it in a tiny little box for 10 o'clock at night. When did that happen? How did we learn to so nicely put this little need of ours and put it in a little box and put it away? At what point did we learn to do that? That's a very, yes, that's a very amazing thing to be able to do. 
We don't see it so, so amazing because we're so used to it, but think about it. We took all this passive pleasure, 24-7 passive pleasure, we shoved it in a little tiny box, maybe the size of like a little, little like ring, and we put it away. When did we learn to do that? That's the teenage stage, guys. That's where identity versus confusion comes from. It's the idea of independence. Who am I? I want to be a responsible adult. I know I have to become a responsible adult, but damn, that's hard. That's a hard thing to do. Not an easy thing to do, right? So, when they want to become independent, the question is, who are they becoming independent from? So now they want to do all these things in terms of who am I? So what are they going to do? They need to individuate. I need to know what I need to do for myself. But who are they becoming in, 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 independent from, let's call it? Who are they individu individuating from? Guess who it is? You guys. So you are, you came here tonight to hear this, that you are a threat. You are a threat to their independence. You could be the coolest person in the world. I'm sure many of you are. You could be the coolest. You could be the nicest. You could be the best parent. But no matter what, the fact that your child was dependent on you for all these years automatically wins you a ticket for being public enemy number one for a teenager. Not in that way, God forbid. But you are a threat to their independence. You have to be able to recognize that. It's hard because we want to be able to know that, you know, that, um, that we can be there for our child, and I'm going to tell you about that a little bit. But you have to understand also that you are, in a way, some sort of threat to this conflict that they're having. Um, okay, so therefore, because of this, the dynamic of the relationship needs to change. You're going to see, actually, well, I, I'll tell you, I, I hear this so many times from clients, from my teenage clients, that they say, you know, that they seem like they're being forced to grow up. Like, I had one client the other week tell me that it's like life, he's on one side of a river, 13-year-old boy, he's on one side of a river, and it's as if life is pushing him across this bridge, raging river under him, and his life is pushing him across this bridge. He just wants to play with his superhero stuff and be a child. And life is just telling him, you got to go and be an adult. And pushing him, pushing him. And he's like, I really want to go, but I really don't want to go. I don't want to become an adult. And if I fail at this, he feels like he's going to fall into that river and get swept away. That sort of talks to this conflict. And I hear it in so many different ways. Not necessarily in that. That was very like, you know, to the point of what exactly we're talking about. But I hear it in so many ways like, the conflict, like, I want to be responsible, but I don't know how to, or I, I, I can't just yet. I'm not ready just yet. But it's important for us as parents to recognize that there's a conflict over here. So the question is, so they want independence, right? They're begging for it. Just leave me alone. Don't talk to me. Let me do what I want. Let me not go to Minyan. Let me do. Should we give them that freedom? Should we say, you know what? Okay, you want independence so badly? Here's the keys. Do whatever you want. Obviously, the answer is no, right? We can't just let them do that. It's actually not, they don't feel safe if you were to do that. They want you to, to be there and be their parent, and they want to be dependent on you, but they do want to also give you a hard time. They do. Um, I've, I've sometimes asked teenagers, I say, okay, so you're fighting so badly for these things. What happens if I told you, you know, in this lucid moment right now, that I should tell your parents that they should just give you a key, get your own apartment, and you're going to do your own thing from now on. Would you want it? Yeah, that'd be awesome. And what would you do? I don't know, I'd chill. I'd bring my friends over, we'd party, we'd have a great time. Okay, that's the first. What about the second day, what would you do? Oh, we'd chill again. Okay, what about the third day? We, laundry? What about laundry? Would you do laundry? Yeah, I guess so. Would you shop? Would you cook? No, bring me back home. I'll go, I will go back home at some point. I'm like, really? <laughs> You're fighting this hard and you would go home after three days? You know? <laughs> Doesn't make so much sense. You're kind of contradictory over here. They know that. They know and they want to be dependent. It's not that they don't, they understand that there's an element of dependence they need to have. But they also remember have, are having this conflict about independence. So very often you're going to see both sides of this war. What do I mean by that? Your son or daughter goes to your, goes to your friend's house or to their friend's house and for the weekend or for a day or whatever and then you'll get a phone call. Hey, your son is such an angel. What a delicious boy you have. I got to tell you, 
your son, he cleaned up, he helped out, the kids were screaming, he was so nice, I mean, so good with kids, oh my God. And you're like, wait, do you have the right number? <laughs> my son, you're talking about this monster in my house, this is the one that you're talking about, the same person? And they're like, yeah, amazing. And you're like, okay, it was a mistake maybe. Must have been a mistake. But guess what? It happens a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time. What's the story over here? Who's the real teenager over here? The one in your house, the one who throws their side. My son who has the socks all over, and they're, they, the second they come over, their knapsack goes flying, and they eat a, a sandwich, just crumbs everywhere. And that, my teenager, that one, the same one, right? And parents go crazy. Why is that? What's going on? Now, tonight, you have an answer. There is this internal war. Maturity, responsibility, and baby. My baby self. The baby self, and at home, by the way, is headquarters for baby self. This is the last place they're going to grow up. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but the last place they're going to be mature, because it's home. It's haven. It's the place where the baby self is the last place for it to, to, to be let go. So people ask me, which one's going to be the real teen? The one out there or the one in the house? The answer is obviously which one? The one out there. That's the one they're striving to be. Again, it's just hard. They have to give up that baby self. A lot of times teens themselves have a hard time understanding what goes on. They tell me, you know, I feel bad for my parents. <laughs> I always laugh when I hear this. I actually feel bad for my mom, but she has to deal with it. It's just funny. Um, <laughs> she has to put up with me, you know, like me, you know, I, I'm not always the best, whatever. Um, and they don't always even know what it is. They're like, I don't know why I'm like that. Like, feel bad. They honestly sometimes even genuinely feel bad, you know? Um, but the point is that that's what's going on. That's step number one. So step number one tonight, I want you guys to walk away, is, guys, there's a war going on. There's this psychological mandate. We're going to call it a mandate, a psychological mandate to become independent, to become individuated. This will actually help you a lot because when this happens and you're aware of it, you don't think, oh my gosh, they're out to get me. You know how many times I hear parents say, hey, they're out to get me. He just hates me. No, they don't hate you. They love you. If I, sometimes parents are like, I'm telling you, my teen hates me. I'm like, are you sure? No, they hate me. They hate. So one hour, by the way, do you love your mom? Of course I do. What kind of crazy question is that? Right? They love you guys. But then, again, the mandate is playing a big role. Don't take it personally when that war comes out. Another thing is just make sure that you're not necessarily, this is also something I find very often, Sometimes dads think this way, like, why are they not acting, 20? why are they not doing this? What do you mean? They're so, it's so immature. Why are they not doing Remember, if they're 12, they're 13, they're 14, there's that war. They didn't get rid of the baby self yet. We can't expect a 13-year-old to act like an adult. They're not, they're not adults yet. They're not there yet. So I'm telling you, expect them to act 13. Expect them to act 14. Now, does that mean you should tell them, okay, it's okay that you're going to just throw your socks all over or, or, you know, leave crumbs everywhere? Absolutely not. But inside, you're not taking it so hard. Like, my gosh, my whole the whole character of my child is at stake over here. They're going to turn out to be a menace to society. They're not going to be an upstanding citizen. They're not going to do it. Look at them. How are they ever going to turn out that way, uh, you know, a, a, a good person? The answer is they're going to be just fine. They're just struggling right now, right? So don't expect them to be adults inside, deep inside. But obviously on the outside, you want to hold them accountable to certain things. We'll talk about that. And because of this psychological mandate to individuate, they're also going to challenge you, right? Part of it is to challenge you. Remember, if you are who I'm individuating from, so I will kind of push you away. I will challenge you. Yeah, you think you're going to tell me what to do? Well, guess what? I'm going to do something, and you're not going to tell me what to do. They'll openly challenge you on that. Or, Sometimes they'll do the opposite. They won't challenge you, but they'll lie. How many of your teenagers lie to you? Raise your hand. Or not lie, I don't want to use the word lie. But they'll like say yes, and then they, they don't do it. They say, okay, mom, I'm going to take care of it. They don't, they don't even, like, you know, they leave out half the story. Who are you with? Half the story is missing. What'd you do? 90% of the story is missing. <laughs> you know? What is that about? That's also about this same uh, you know, mandate of, of individuation. That's a form of controlling them, being in control of themselves. So sometimes parents get very caught up in the lying. And I don't blame them. It's very hard to get lied to or not be told the truth. It's very difficult. And then sometimes we get caught up, like, how can I trust you? And it becomes a whole thing. And it becomes a whole emotional thing about trust. And 
Guys, let's not get caught up. They're lying as a byproduct of individuation. What I would tell you to do is, if they lie to you, they don't, they're not so clear with you, ignore the lying part. You may want to confront and say, hey, it's not cool that you did that, but there's usually a responsibility that's being avoided or there's something that's being avoided. Stick to the task at hand. Focus on the responsibility. Focus on the task at hand. Focus on what they're trying to get around, what they're trying to skirt around by, by lying to you. Um, another part of this mandate, I'm just giving you a couple different points of what this sort of does for a teenager, their experience, is that they find parents embarrassing. They don't want to be seen with you. I'm sure that's happened once or twice with some of you. Not always. I can't say all, by the way, not everything here applies to every teenager. It's some things yes, some things no, some things more for some, some less for some. But the point is, very often, like parents are like, why doesn't he, why, I want to just go out to dinner with, like he won't even come to dinner with us. Or I tell him, okay, I'll drive you, uh, drop, my, drop me off at the corner. I don't want to be seen with you. Am I really that gross? Like, <laughs> I'm a, I think I'm a pretty cool person. Like, my, I have friends. I, I have friends. I mean, it's not like I'm, don't take it personally. Again, it's their own projection of what's going on for them. It's their own weakness. It's a vulnerability for them to be seen with you. They feel weak if they are with someone that they're dependent on. They don't want to feel weak. It's vulnerable. They want to feel strong. They want to feel independent. That's why when they're not with you, they feel better. They feel stronger. Nothing you did wrong. Just know that. Um, another thing is that very often parents tell me that they feel like they're being taken for granted. Right? They're being taken for granted. That the child is, you know, not appreciating them, not... Um, not, uh, I guess, giving the proper uh, acknowledgement of the things that they do. And not only that, they, the, the teenager very often will, as we spoke about entitled, this is going to answer that, why, why they feel so entitled, that you should, at least when it comes to you, is that they want, they know that you have a job to do. And they're kind of testing you in a way. They know you have to take care of them. So they're trying to say, like, okay, let's see how mom and dad do with their job, right? You have to do your job. Why? Because they want to see what it looks like to be a responsible person, to be a responsible adult. So they sort of throw that back on you. They throw that onus of like, you need to take care of me back on you. Again, don't get thrown off if they don't take you for granted. I even go so far to say, you should always do your kids favors. Go out of your way. I'm sure many of you are very, very good parents. You go way out of your way, way above and beyond. And that's great. That's all part of being a good parent. But then sometimes what happens, sometimes, when you go so far above and beyond, when they don't respond in a positive way, what happens is you might get a little resentful. Like, I just spent the whole day taking him here, taking him there, taking him to other place. He can't just take in three shopping bags to help me out? Ugh! And they're so resentful. So... Again, I totally understand it, but you should just know where that comes from, right? You should just know where that comes from. They do take you for granted. And if it's going to be something that you resent so much, then sometimes, I would say, if it's going to cause a whole emotional blowout, better not to do the favor, honestly. You don't want to ruin your, your relationship for that. The relationship is so much more important. One more quick point is they want, <laughs> I hear teenagers talking all the time, and they always like judging adults. I don't know if you guys ever noticed this. The teacher was this, and this teacher was that. Yes, you're nodding your head. Yes, they're always, what is with the judgment? Why are they looking at adults and saying, oh, did you see the teacher messed up here, and this parent did this? Like, what is the deal with that? Why are they so, like, on the radar with this whole situation? Like, what are they, what's going on? And the answer is because they're conflicted. They know that they have flaws. They know they have shortcomings. They know they're not perfect in every way. And they know that they're going to be an adult pretty soon. They want to know that adults can be flawed and still make it. And the worst thing you could do as an adult, if you have a flaw, there's probably none of you somehow talking to anyone here, but <laughs> if you do have a flaw, don't cover it up. Don't pretend it doesn't exist. Be open about it and just be honest and say, hey, this is something I'm working on. This is something that, I don't know, that I'm really trying hard to do better at, let's say, or whatever. But the point is that they know that and they see it. And the reason why they, they, they're, they're try, they, they are on the lookout for that because they need to know that they're going to be able to make it as an, as an adult. So therefore, you know, these are all different things that, that kind of happen as a teenager. So therefore, what happens for us? How do we respond to this psychological mandate? So we said we can't let them just go free, right? We can't just let them do whatever they want. 
That's not good. Per permissiveness is not, is not going to help them grow up. So what do we do? How do we relate to this? So step number one in doing so, and this is very, very difficult, is there has to be an element of what I would call letting go. Letting go means what? Letting go means that when they want to become an adult, on some level, you have to be on board with that. You have to be their teammate in them becoming an adult. So they come to you and say, hey, Ma, I want to get on a train, right? If you say, no, 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 you train? No, not you, you are the most, what are you, you? You're not getting on any train, sorry, buds, right? You're squashing independence. You're telling that kid, you're not worthy to ever go on a train. What does that do? I'm trying to hear, sit here, build independence, and you're squashing it? So part of letting go is the way you approach it is that, of course, you want to teach the kid to be able to, at some point, go on a train. Well, obviously, you want to do it in a responsible way. You want them to know how to do it safely or whatever it is that they're coming to you about, driving, train, hanging out, late at night, whatever it may be, but to do it responsibly or to be able to squash independence. We want them to be independent, but then it's on us to be able to, to acknowledge that and promote it too and be on board and say, hey, I would love for you to be able to do that. How can we do that? Right? So letting go I'm talking about is letting go a little bit of what we think a child should be, and which is sometimes still a child, and say, hey, how can we promote adulthood? Right? On some level, this is what we call reverse attachment. Right? So we spoke about when a caregiver takes care of a child, right? there's an attachment, there's nurturing that happens from, from, the child, from the parent to the child, from the caregiver to the child. Reverse attachment is sometimes what, what a child provides for me emotionally. It's a little bit of a complicated subject. If any of you want to read, by the way, great, great stuff. Attachment theory is amazing stuff, a lot to learn from that. But the reverse attachment is kind of like, what does my child provide for me? I know it's a little complicated to understand that, but you know, um, it's like our own deep need for our, for our children to want us and need us. We may not necessarily be so conscious of this all the time, but there is an element that parents kind of go through, and again, it's nothing that anyone did wrong, it's just that we want our kids to need us and want us, and, and, and kind of like, we want that, it makes us feel good. So that's, not, that's okay on a certain level, but then sometimes it can become inappropriate. We need to learn that our children should go on their own. It's not about me, it's about them. And that's really the ultimate, let's call it sacrifice, is that you're, you're there for your children to grow up and you're there for your children to become individuated. So there's actually a psychologist named Dr. Di Guy Diamond. The way he describes the, the whole stage of, of teenagehood is an autonomy with a backdrop of attachment. So, you, you want them to have some attachment, but you're in the backdrop uh, with, the, the, the backdrop is attachment, but they are actually going ahead and trying to be autonomous. Obviously, why is it so hard to let go? Because we as parents are afraid, right? And also we're affected by the information age too. We want to prevent disasters. We want bad things not to happen. And if we let them do their things and go out into this world, yes, you are right. The risks are very high. I'm not going to deny that, right? There's plenty of risks out there. So we want to try to protect our children for as much as, lo as long as possible. And on some level, we should. No, if it's something that you think that is going to be risky and you don't feel comfortable, like really not comfortable, then obviously you need to do what you need to do as a parent and put your foot down and say no. But if it's something that you're not adversely, you know, adver totally uncomfortable with, but it's something that maybe might help them. So maybe you need to ask yourself, is it good for them maybe to have that? Is it good for them to maybe build in the independence and, 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 and maybe I should work with them and try to help them accomplish that, right? So yes, the risks are high, but you still need to somewhat let go. Um, question is, how does that play a role with control? Should we be controlling our teenagers? Parents ask me this all the time too. What's the obvious answer to that? Should we control our teenagers? The answer is no. You should never control anybody, frankly. Right? Even younger children, you shouldn't necessarily control them. You have control over what they eat, who they play with. But again, even with younger kids, you want to try to create some sort of autonomy. Obviously, it's highlighted in the teenage stages, but we're not here to control our children. That's not what we're here for. We're here to help them control themselves and learn what to do to control themselves. But there has to be some semblance of Normalcy, right? They need to do with some sort of structure. So we do what's the next best thing, which we don't want to do control. So
So what we're going to do is something called imperfect control. Um, what is this uh, concept of in imperfect control? So I'm going to teach you something that teenagers probably don't want me to tell you, but I'll tell you the secret tonight anyway. You came all the way out here, you deserve it. <laughs> so what's this concept called imperfect control? So as an adult, if you do something wrong, who's the voice in your head talking to you? Who's that voice in your head saying, oh my gosh, you shouldn't, eat that. You shouldn't have eaten that piece of cake by the wedding last night? Your own voice? How many of you say it's your own voice? <laughs> you get a speeding ticket. Who's the voice in your head? It's not your priest. It's not your rabbi. It's usually your own voice. It's not your therapist. Usually your own voice, right? You're the one that's upset at yourself. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? I reacted this way. I should have reacted better. I should have just held on and, and you know, thought of a better way to react, right? Anyone know what that concept is called? The voice talking to you and telling you, who said that? I heard it. <laughs> Say that out loud, please. Yeah, exactly, your conscience, right? It's, there's a voice in your head that talks to you, your conscience, which in psychology we call your superego. There's this superego, which is usually pretty harsh, that's talking to you all the time, telling you, do this, and don't do this, and do this, and you should have done this better, and you should have done that better. This superego is what keeps us adults in check, true or not, right? So this voice is also in the teenage head as well. We all have a superego from, I think it's developed around six, seven years old, if I remember correctly. But here's the difference. A teenager, 13, 14, 15 years old, the voice in their head that's saying, don't do it, is whose voice? It's not their own. It's their parents'. The parents are in their head constantly, and I see it. When I talk to them, they don't think, oh, I really shouldn't do this. It's like, oh, my mom doesn't want me to do this. My dad, oh, my dad's going to be pissed at me. Right? This is how they are. This is how they talk. Right? That superego is super strong. I'm going to prove it to you. Right? So you tell your child, Bobby, hey, little Bobby, you're going out tonight for the party? You better be home by 12 o'clock. You know you got to be home at 12 o'clock, right? Yeah, okay, okay, Dad. Okay. All right, little Bobby goes to the party. 11, 11.30, he's getting nervous. 12, 12.30, ah, oh, the party's great. I am not leaving. I'm not listening to that, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to stay. They stay, 12.45, 1 o'clock, they come home. They try to sneak into the house quietly, lock the door. They're halfway up the steps, and Dad sees them, right? Bobby? Why are you always yelling at me? What's wrong with you? Why are you always yelling? Why, why is everything a fight? Did that ever happen to you? Where all you want to know is, did you have a good time? I just wanted to know, did you have fun? Did you meet anyone? Were there any cute girls? That, like, just tell me something. But they're having this crazy reaction. What's that all about? The guilt? Yeah, someone. Guilt is part of the conscience, right? It's that feeling of... You, were, you think you, were, you weren't in their head. They say, I don't care. Oh, you think I'm going to come back 12? I don't care. You were in their head. Believe it or not, this is the secret I'm telling you tonight. You were in their head from 11 o'clock. Saying already, uh-oh, you better be home soon, Bobby. <laughs> 11.15, 45 minutes now, Bobby. Right? 12 o'clock, Bobby! And that finger wagging starts coming. You're not home yet! And they're already finger wagging, and that voice is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So little Bobby shows up. 14-year-old Bobby shows up. He's going to the door, and Dad says to him, Bobby, right? It's not that first interaction. To him, he's been hearing this voice for an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> an hour and 15 minutes, Dad is wagging his, or Mom, wagging their finger in their face. So they have this huge explosion. You're always yelling at me, and you weren't even yelling. Sometimes parents don't even yell, but this is how it is. This is the superego. So you're in their head. They say they don't care, but they care. And we're going to use this against them, guys. We're going to plan together here against our teenagers. They give us so much trouble. We're going to use this superego against them. How are we going to do that? We're going to do that by setting limits. A parent's job, this is also something that parents sometimes confuse. Your job is to set limits. It is. That is your job. But... Don't confuse that with, it's not your job to make sure they keep the limits. This is where it gets a little bit 
murky for some parents. You set the limits. You make rules. You make boundaries. But it's not your job to keep them. The onus has to remain on your child. The onus has to remain on your teenager. They need to be the ones that are keeping the, the limit. right? The clearer your boundary, the more likely they are to keep it. The more you're consistent with your boundary, the fairer your boundary, the more likely they're going to keep it. Right? Um, which brings me to my next point called the working relationship. In order for this to work, you need to have some sort of what we call a working relationship. I'm sure some of you heard the four different types of parenting, right? There's the authoritarian, right? You better do it my way, my way or the highway, right? Now, does that work with a working relationship? Absolutely not, because I've seen this many times. If you're going to use that authoritarian sort, and by the way, usually parents don't fit into one square perfectly authoritarian, permissive. We all have a little bit of everything. But if you're going to use the authoritarian, it's my way or the highway, I'm not working with you. You think you're going to control me? Well, guess what? I'm going to dig my heels in, and I'm going to fight you because of independence. You're going to try to sh be, make me do what you want me to do only? I'm not working with you. I'm done. And they will say that. So that doesn't work. So there has to be some form of a working relationship, which means negotiation does happen. Now, parents sometimes say, what, I have to negotiate with my teenager? Well, yeah, somewhat. You should, a little bit. Why? Because you're showing them that you have a working relationship that you want to work with them, you want to work with what they want, but they have to do within also some sort of limit, right? Again, we spoke about the imperfect control. It's within some sort of limit. So yes, it's your job definitely to keep, to set limits. Um, <clears throat> so the question is, if that relies so much on a relationship, how do we as parents build a good relationship? What do we do to build a good relationship? So someone said communication, right? So usually when you want to have a good relationship, you sit and talk. You and your significant other, you want to work on your relationship, what do you do? You go out to dinner, you talk for three hours, and great, your relationship improves just from that talk. Now you can plan chats with your teenagers, but I'm sure I could count maybe on one hand how many of your teenagers will actually sit and have a chat with you. Am I right about that? Doesn't go over too well. You could plan the chat, but it's not going to work out too well. They don't like to necessarily, like, it's very idealistic, like, you know, like, oh, uh, we're going to go for coffee, and they're going to say, Dad, Mom, you know, I didn't study for my test, Ugh, it's really bad, I, I'm so sorry, like, I wish I did better, and they're not going to do that. Give that up. They're not doing that. So you can try to plan it, but, uh, and it's a good thing to try to have those chats, but again, for the most part, they're going to try to avoid that. So that doesn't really work so well, and especially if it's lecturing, right? Lecturing, one kid goes to me last week, he goes, when my dad talks, I literally hear buzz. <laughs> it's like a buzz. I'm like, you don't hear a thing? No, not a thing. It's like, just buzz. <laughs> okay? <laughs> um, because the lecturing at some point is like, okay, I got so number one. This is a very important one. Is there generally needs to be some sort of positive regard towards your teenager. Meaning what? That as a general whole, be positive towards them. Even if they give you trouble, even if it's hard, even if they haven't been the best yesterday, be positive towards them. What does that mean? Compliment them. Say I love you. Show them that you enjoy spending time with them. Show them that you appreciate them. Show them that you're thinking of them. Right? If you're able to do these little things that actually show them that you care about them, they want it, by the way. They, they, they need it so badly. I can't even tell you how badly, you know, uh, teenagers need this. Um, you got to show them that that you're not a burden, that they're not a burden to you, and show them that you accept them. Show interest in their activities, right? Yes, sit with them when they're playing Fortnite. I don't care. Like, sit with them when they're watching football. Hey, what are you watching? You know. So show that you're interested in what they're interested in. Be positive towards them. And why is that so important? Well, that's important within that. That itself is very important but also they'll st set up the next step. The next step is when you want to spend time with them, they won't, be, they won't challenge it as quickly if you're, they feel good with you. If they feel good with you and you say, hey, let's go hang out, they won't be like, what? Hang out with that one? We just yell, I don't want to do that, right? There's a five to one ratio, by the way, in relationships that um, I think, I believe it was Gottman who came up with, he did this with with, uh, with uh, marriages, but this is a general rule for relationships. If you want to give one criticism, you better have given five compliments, right? Famous rule, five to one ratio, right? So if you didn't give the five and now you want to hang out with them, 
or you want to do something positive, it's not going to work out that well. So start out by, doing the, by being positive. Then you want to spend time with them. Yes, take them one-on-one, -on -one, even if they say no in the beginning. But again, if you're positive towards them, they'll, they will do it, especially if it's on their terms. And that's how you should spend that one-on-one -on -one time. It's not like, oh, I'm going to run an errand. You want to jump along? They're not coming for your errand. I'm sorry. <laughs> Show them, hey, I want to spend time with you. What do you want to do? How, when do you want to do it? I'll make time for you. Time to them equals love. It shows that you care about them and it shows that you want to spend time with them. And when you do that, you are just creating this pipeline, this relationship pipeline. It's so important. At least once every other week or one parent every other week. Something has to happen. So I would tell you, and by the way, sometimes they'll be like, if it hasn't happened, they'll be awkward about it. They'll be like, no, I can't. But persist. I'm telling you guys, persist. They will agree to do it. Um, that's part of building the, the relationship. Another thing is accept them for who they are, right? Don't spend your whole time with them. Just tr not even just, I'm not talking about just when you're one-on-one, -on -one, just in general. Don't spend your whole energy just trying to change them. But why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? And why don't you try this? And why don't you try that, right? You should be encouraging. You should push them to do things that they, that's a little bit out of their comfort zone. But on some level, you have to accept them for who they are. Um, another thing is give them space, right? Don't corner them and start demanding things from them. Teenagers do need their space. It's an important thing. It's part of individuation. Um, so that's an, and they, they, they appreciate it. They appreciate it. Actually, one kid yesterday tells me, uh, um, my mom has been uh, seeking me out. What was the word he used? He's been, she's been seeking me out, and it's kind of annoying. I'm like, what happened? He's like, I don't know. I used to be in the basement more. Now I'm upstairs, but she didn't see me, so now she comes and just checks on me like, leave me alone. So I'm not saying don't check on your kids. I'm just saying they do need their space. Um, with this relationship, again, this is how they're going to listen to you in limit setting. When it comes time to limit setting, you do all of this stuff, and then you need to have that conversation. Guys, just imagine for a second. How much better will it go if you have this relationship backing you up, right? Because what you're going to essentially be doing is saying, hey, listen, I set a rule. At the end of the day, I'm a parent. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to work with you, and I want you to get what you want but you also are, are breaking the rules or whatever, you're breaking our trust. How, how do you expect that to happen if you're doing that? You can actually have a conversation. They might actually listen to you. So this is the backbone of the whole limit setting uh, uh, part of parenting. And yes, you will gain their respect if you could do that firmly. If you're firm about your, your limits, they'll actually respect you if you're consistent about it and you're fair about it. Because again, they, remember, they don't want to outright defy you. They're not there to disappoint you. And they don't like, happens to be teenagers really don't like disappointing their parents. So if they have a good relationship with you, that itself is going to keep them in check. Again, not the fear. What will keep them in check is the relationship. They don't want to disappoint you. They don't want to hurt you. Sometimes they get lost and they break the rules anyway because that's what they, remember, that's what they do. But in general, they don't want to disappoint you. Um, what happens if they break the rule? Let's say you set a limit and they break the rule. Now, obviously, I can't give you everything in, in, in a one-hour lecture of like what to do. It's kind of hard. But if they do break the rule, you obviously want to just confront it. You want to confront it. You want to do three things. You want to tell them you broke the rule. It's not OK to break the rule. And the rule still stands, right? So imagine you set the limit. They stepped out of the limit. You come and you say, hey, you broke that limit. You're supposed to be here. You were there. That's not OK. And you do that consistently, what happens is they go less and less out of the limit. right? But if your limit is not so clear, or you don't confront it consistently, then it's kind of hazy. You can't expect them to keep your rule. You have to be the one that, that's going to confront them when they break the rule. And the biggest step, should I add, the fourth step in confronting them is learning when to get out. When to get out of that conversation. Because what's going to happen? You're going to say, hey, you broke the rule. What do you think they're going to say? But it wasn't my fault. It was, yeah, your rules are not fair. I don't care about your rule, right? So they do something called externalizing. When you come to confront them, there's, again, remember, there's this internal conflict. You can never forget this. There's an internal conflict going on. Maturity, responsibility, baby self, passive pleasure. There's this war going on. So now, you put a limit, they broke the the limit, they broke the rule, they were not responsible, they're not mature, they didn't make a good decision. Now you're coming and you're stepping into this war zone. What do you think is going to happen? 
They're going to try to pull you in to this, to their mess, let's call it, right? They're going through this internal mess, and now who shows up on the scene? Mommy or daddy. Now you're showing up on their scene, and it's not comfortable to sit with an internalized conflict. It's not a good feeling. So what they're going to do is they're going to externalize with you. They're going to call you names. They're going to call you profanities. They're going to say you're not fair. They're going to say you don't love me. They're going to do all these things to trap you into this dynamic so that I don't have to deal with my internal conflict. If I don't have to deal with my internal conflict and I'm dealing with you, it's much more comfortable. Because that's what a baby would do, right? I would rather externalize and fight with you than sit with this internal conflict. We need to be smarter and walk away. Hey, you broke the rule. You know that's not okay. There was a punishment that was because of that repercussion. And you know, we spoke about this. And we said, if next time you come after 1 o'clock, you can't take the car the next night, right? Or whatever it is that, whatever rule it is that you had. And you walk away. Guess what? Very often, when you end up staying in that dynamic, you, what? You say, I don't love you. Do you know what I do for you? Do you know what I, right? And you start going on and you get, you get dragged in. It doesn't end well. It goes nowhere. There's no point. There is no point of that externalizing conversation. You want to walk out before that happens. Set, you set the limit. They broke it. You confronted it. You did your job. Now walk out. Now walk out. And they will learn that, hey, I don't always need to get the last word. Look, mom, mom and dad were able to walk away. They get that underlying message that, you know, you have enough confidence to be able to walk away. So we can't be so persistent and stand in that dynamic, right? Again, they're just trying to trap you in. So the point is, I mean, I could give you a quick example if you guys want to hear a quick example about that. I know it's late. How much more time do we have? Nicole? We have two more minutes? Yes? Okay, just really quickly. Um, imagine, I give this example in my, in my parenting class. It seems to really hit the point well. But imagine you go into a store, you come out, and there's a meter maid writing you a ticket, right? And, and, um, and you come out, and you're like, wait, wait one second, I was just whatever, my parents, uh, and they're like, it's your fault. You're, you're so immature. You should have you put an alarm on your phone. Why'd you not? It's your fault, and they're nasty to you, right? And you walk away. Who are you upset at? You're, the, you're, you're upset at the meter maid. You'll come home, you'll tell your husband, or you're my God, I met this woman. Can you believe her attitude? She's so mean. She gave me this. Like, what's the deal? Why can't she just be not, right? You're upset at her. Now, what happens if you came out, there's no meter maid, there's a ticket on your window? Who are you upset at? Yourself. Oh, shouldn't have done that. Oh, next time I got to be better with the app, whatever. Like, you're more upset at yourself. You internalize it. We want our teenagers to sit there with that conflict. What did I do wrong? Should I have said that? Should I have not said that? Should I have done that? Should I have not done that? That is exactly what builds the muscle called maturity. The more they sit with that, the more they practice it, the more muscular their maturity becomes. We want them to sit with that internalizing sort of conflict. It's good for them. We can't get in the way. So what I'm trying to tell you guys is walk away from that. And again, by the way, just another point regarding that is that what happens, so now you had this whole conflict you know, you stayed, let's say you stayed in that dynamic and you ha you're shaking, you go downstairs, you're like mad, you can't wait to tell your, uh, and you're like, you start like preparing something and they come down 10 minutes later and they're like, Ma, Ma, can I have money for my, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Ma, can you drive me, can you drive me to my friend? What, you, after what you just said, they're totally, they're totally fine. Did that ever happen to you? They're totally fine. As if nothing freaking happened. Right? What's the deal? For them, it's not real. It wasn't a real emotional battle the way we think of it. For us, it was. For them, it was nothing. It was literally nothing. It was like, oh, my baby self tantrum. I get up off the floor after my tantrum. I, wear, I stand up. Okay, life's good again. Let's go back to life and expect everyone. Now, I'm not telling you just give in to that. You say, hey, listen, what you said was very hurtful. And in a relationship, you can't say things like that. But I'm telling you guys, avoid that. Try to avoid that whole conflict by not getting involved in those externalizations. Do your job and walk out. Um, very often what keeps us in that dynamic is because we think that their character is flawed. We have to fix them. We have to fix them. There's something wrong with them. They're going to turn out, right? There's nothing wrong with them. This is teenagers. This is how it is. Don't get involved with their mess. Do what you need to do. Set limits. Confront them. Walk out. If you come with that sort of attitude where it's, you know, I'm almost going to call it emotionless when it comes to limit setting, you got to just be very cool, calm, and collected. Do what you need to do when it comes to limit setting and rule breaking and you walk out, you're going to have a much better relationship. You're not going to hurt the relationship. So just to close, I'm going to quickly summarize the things we spoke about. Parenting is done from a very intellectual learning model. 
It's not behavioral, fear-based. It's we need to teach them, not scare them. Number two, don't take things personally. Number three, they challenge us and they try to defy us because of this mandate to become independent. Number four, remember that we guys, we need to let go, right? Let go means help them become independent. Your job is to set limits, imperfect control. Remember that concept. Walk away with that concept, imperfect control. It's not gonna be perfect. Remember that you use the concept of superego, right? Superego is their voice in their head. Remember you are in the head. They say they don't care. They say we don't care what you say. Don't believe them. I'm telling you, don't believe them. Um, have a working relationship because they need that relationship part in order to have a working relationship. Be positive towards them, take them out one-on-one, -on -one, accept them for who they are, love them unconditionally, give them space. We need to do that in order to build a good relationship. If they break a rule, what we just spoke about, confront them, be firm, not emotional, remember the three steps, actually four. Walk away, let them internalize, not externalize. Remember that if you do this well, guys, they will respect you, they'll come out of this crazy time and you guys will have a great relationship and the good news is that once they individuate and they know who they are, they're able to come back to you. They say, okay, I'm pushing you away for a little bit. I need to understand myself. I need to learn myself. I need to figure out who I am. But once I'm done with that, I can step back in. As long as the relationship was there and they feel, they feel respect and they feel positively towards you, they will come back. And with that, I'd like to close out. I don't know if we want to have a question and answer. I'm here and have a good night. Thank you again for coming out and thank you for uh, the committee. One second, I gotta get that name up. The, Nicole? The Parent School Partnership Committee in honor of Esther and Jack Hittery. Thank you so much. Guys, thank you for taking your time out of your busy night to come out here.